0: Don't mind me, just sneaking out to go to Kohl's. The home deals right now, they're too good to pass up. Like up to 40% off cuddle that's bedding, up to 50% off the cutest fall decor, and up to 25% off ninja kitchen appliances. How can I resist? You can even get 15% off, or 15, 20, or 30% off with a Kohl's card. So yeah, I'm going all in for fall, and I can't even wait. Select styles, offers end October 17th. Some exclusions apply. See store Kohl's account for details. You know I'm right. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese and Joe, our guest today, I think it's just perfect. We got St. Patrick's Day coming up soon and nobody knows more about St. Patrick's Day than him.
1: Absolutely. We're going to talk about his St. Patty Day experiences. Uh, He's currently a broadcaster for the Philadelphia Union and he uh, previously covered soccer for a long time on ESPN. Uh, we're somebody, he's somebody that we're really, really happy to have on. We've never really had a a big soccer announcer here, too. So uh, this is going to be a, definitely an experience for you and I. Uh, Mr. Tommy Smith with a Y, not an I. Tommy, thank you for
2: joining us today. How are you? Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Nick. And, uh, you know, you said the Philadelphia Union. As always, I need to plug in the mornings. I do uh, grumpy pundits. And I'll tell you one thing, I do be grumpy in the morning. We do it on the <laughs> XM. <laughs> Seven uh, from nine o'clock till noon, six, five days a week.
0: They have a big sheet tune into that. And this interview is going to be a bulge in the old onion bag. We're really excited to have Tommy on here with us. Tommy, let's, let's take you back to uh, your childhood growing up. Uh, obviously it's a birthright for, for everybody in, in Ireland or the United Kingdom to play football, or as we call it here, soccer. Uh, when did you start playing and how did you fall in love with the game?
2: Well, actually, we call it soccer, too, so you're okay. 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 I I come from a very small place in Ireland called Knockbridge. It's about four miles from Dundalk. Soccer would not be the number one sport there, as soccer is not the number one sport in Ireland. Uh, Gaelic football is actually the number one sport in Ireland. And I grew up uh, playing with uh, my local club, St. Brides, but I became a supporter of Dundalk FC, who played at Oriel Park, and each week, and uh, my dad and my brother, Harry, would take me in to see the games with them. And that's where I learned my lingo. And that's where I learned how to watch the game and how to play the game and course and do a few other things as well. You know, but th- it was it was a good education.
0: No doubt about it. So 1963, you come to the United States to play with, a, with a, the Shamrock Club here for the German-American Soccer League. What was that experience like for you moving from your hometown to the United States of America?
2: Well, you can kind of judge it yourself, right? Because at uh, the village I come from, there's maybe 10 houses in. The parish I come from, there were maybe 200 people in the parish at that time. And I arrived here in uh, Regal Park, not very far from where I live now. And uh, I mean, there were more people in one of those houses than there was in the biggest town that I was in. So, I mean, the culture shock was just unbelievable plus I arrived on the 3rd of August and the temperature was like uh, 500 something like that I don't know it was warm and I'll tell you how long ago it is guys and how different it is now when I arrived in Kennedy you walked down the steps of the plane there was none of these things where you walked right into the building you had to walk down the steps and in and like I was after being best man for my brother at a wedding the previous week and that was an occasion in Ireland to buy a brand new suit and the brand new suit was about, I'd say maybe it was three quarters of an inch thick. And I had it on me and I got off the plane. I had no idea whether the heat was coming up or whether it was coming down or where it was coming. Up. Just <laughs> unbelievable. And, and to finish this little story, I remember I went to, I was staying with my aunt and she was the superintendent of a building, so we lived in the basement. And on Sunday morning, after a long sleep after the flight and being jet-lagged, I remember waking up, and it was the strangest thing, because you know in basements they have those little windows, and all I could see was legs going by the window. And I said to myself, oh, my God, I'm dreaming. This can't be true. But it was, and I'm here since. Thankfully. Uh,
1: so I wanted to ask you about the communication barrier, because... Obviously, the way we word things here, the terminology that we use, uh, slightly different from most places in the world. Uh, judging by your previous work, obviously, that was never really an issue for you. Uh, but when you first came over here, were there, were there things that uh, you had to, to say differently? Uh, was there anything off the top of your head that you noticed that we said it was a little different than from where you came from? Yeah, there was a
2: lot of different things. I mean, uh, uh, one thing that I, one little story I tell, but it, it, it just goes to show you how naive I was. I was here maybe two or three days and my aunt gave me a bunch of letters, as we call them. She called them mail. And she said, would you go out and put those in the mailbox? Right. So I went out looking for the mailbox and I got to where the mailbox was. And there was a sign right beside the mailbox. It said post no bills. So I went through her letters and I took out the ones that looked like bills and I kept them in my hand and I put the rest in the mailbox. And I went back home to her. I said, I didn't know where to put these. And she said, What do you mean you didn't know where to put them? I said the sign said post no bills. She said that's billboards, not bills. So, you know, everything was different. Everything was different.
0: Certainly. And you know, you've adjusted well. You've been here for for quite some time now. Longer than How- you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How often do you uh, do you head home to Ireland?
2: Well, before this pandemic, Captain, I generally went home twice. I go home every year for Christmas. See, it's funny. You still say home after fifty-seven years here. It's still home, but uh, and I always go every summer. I go for the the Galway races. I'm uh, a keen horse player. I, I love the ponies. That's why I'm still working. And uh, my are good <laughs> over the years, as they should have been.
0: Absolutely. So how did you get involved with the Metro Stars, which is the local team for Joe and I, now they're the Red Bulls, uh, with Major League Soccer in
2: 1996? Okay, you know, I I played Gaelic football in in New York for many years. And as you said, I played with the Shamrocks playing the soccer in the the German-American League. Uh, And I I got invited one day in Gaelic Park, if I would announce the games in the park itself. It's an Irish park up on 240th Street in the Bronx where they play Irish football and hurling. And I started doing commentaries. And then I heard that uh, in 94, uh, the World Cup was coming to the United States. So I made a cold call to ESPN to know if there was any chance of getting a job in the World Cup. And a guy called Dennis Deniger was very nice to me, took me up the ESPN, gave me lunch. And uh, I didn't get a job on the World Cup. That's the long and the short of it. But at that time, the ESPN were opening their international station. And it dealt with a lot of soccer. And I was asked if I would like to do a soccer game. And my first soccer game was from Brazil. Now, uh, me being a smart Irish guy, taught that Brazilians spoke Spanish which, of course, they don't. So it it came close to doing the game. And uh, I realised that I couldn't pronounce some of the names. So if you were watching that game that night, there were two players, Alex and Dan. And if you've seen those players, you would imagine they were going to be mainstays for Brazil for the next World Cup. Because any time Tommy had a problem, Alex got the ball. And if he couldn't find somebody else, he passed it to Dan. And that was how the game went. It was just... It was an experience and I was in ESPN for quite a while when I got a call from Charlie Stilitano, who was, uh, he was the man in charge of the Metro Stars at the time. And Charlie was the guy who was the venue director for a uh, giant stadium when the World Cup was played there. And he said, uh, come down. He said, I'd like to talk to you because he had been watching me doing stuff on ESPN. At that point in time, we had managed to get the Champions League stuff as well as everything else. And uh, they offered me the job as the, the announcer for the Metro Stars and that's how I started. And strangely enough, the guy who was the play by play on the game when I was doing the Metro Stars first was Joe Tollison. Now wow. I work for Joe Boss that's serious. So I mean it goes around, man, and it goes around and it keeps coming back.
1: Yeah. Joe Tollefson does the uh, Madison square garden stuff. stuff. Uh, when Nick and I go to Rangers games, he's the guy on the, the, the PA system, you know, for our listeners who don't recognize the name immediately. Uh, so you made a, a cold call to ESPN, which is interesting. Did not know that about you. Uh, so was there any type of auditioning process uh, before they allowed you the opportunity to call games? Uh, and then when you, went to the call games for the Metro stars. Did they go previously on the games that you were doing? Was there an auditioning process for that
2: too as well? Yeah. Strangely enough, I hadn't done games on television. I hadn't done, but I went home to, uh, I got the call from ESPN in like, uh, October and they said, well, they kept putting it off and kept putting it off. it will be next week. It'll be next week. So finally, I was going home to Ireland for Christmas, right? And I still hadn't done an audition for them or anything else. So what I did was on a very cold Sunday afternoon, I bundled all my nephews and nieces who were like in age bracket from five up to 12 or 14. And we all went to the game in Dundalk to see Dundalk playing Limerick. And I sat them all around me in the stand and I sat in the middle of them and I did the commentary of the game for them as we were sitting there. Now, I knew if I can satisfy these bunch of little you-know-whats, I'd be fine. (laughs) So it went well. They thought it was great. I came back, and ESPN just called me and said, "Okay, you're doing a game, Santos against Guarani. Santos, I knew I had no problems with, because, of course, Pelé played with Santos. So I had plenty of backdrop on on what Santos were. Guarani, I had no idea who they were. But I started doing uh, the Brazilian Championship, and I ended up doing Brazil for maybe... I don't know, maybe 18 or 19 years. And I've also, you know, I got the, it's funny how I'm trying to weave a story in here to you, just so as you, you know, if you have younger listeners who who are listening to this, and I know you you have many of them, I don't ever want them to get discouraged by something that happens that would say, no, you shouldn't do it. You know, at one point when I was doing the Brazilian Championship, I got a call from the Big Ten in the U S and a guy told me, Oh, we're going to put on a college game every uh, Wednesday. He said, we'd love to have you come and do the games. He said, wow. it'd be great. And I said, sure. And my wife, Trasa, who's also Irish, we discussed and I said, this is going to be great. I'm going to travel around the country. I'm going to see all these college campuses and I'm going to be on television every Wednesday. I said, this is fantastic. So this went on and on, you know how it is in television and radio. And finally, I called the guy and I said to him, hey, what happened to the big job I was getting? And he said, well, I'm sorry, he said. I have to tell you, he said, they decided to go with Desmond Armstrong, who was already had played with the United States and was a college graduate. They said, seeing as to how you have no college affiliations or anything, they thought it would be better to have a, one of their own. Now, to say I was devastated was just putting it politely. I could call it a lot of other things. And that night, myself and my wife said, oh, my God, what, what? So on the next day, I go to Bristol to do a game, which I did an awful lot of games off the monitor in Bristol. And as I walk into Bristol, the big boss shouts at me, Smitty, that was all I ever got up there. Come here. And I said, OK. Now I said to myself, I'm in trouble. Now he said, I have good news for you. I said, what's the good news? He said, we just signed the Champions League. And for those guys who don't know what the Champions League is, the Champions League is the biggest championship that's played in Europe. It's the champions of all countries come together for such a big occasion and it is a really big occasion. He said, we've signed it. He said, you're going to be the number one analyst. And the irony of the whole thing was, the Big Ten job was going to be on a Wednesday. Champions League was on a Wednesday. So had I signed the contract with the Big Ten, I would have missed out on the Champions League. And I to, to show you how important it was, I have announced 19 Champions Leagues from every capital in the world since then. So I would have missed out all on that. So sometimes when the door closes, the other one opens, and you need to get in very quickly.
0: Yeah, everything has has a way of working themselves out. And it's funny, you mentioned you, you used to call you call all the games off the monitor in Bristol. And for your peers in the broadcast industry, that's a new thing they've had to do the last 12 months. However, you, you've been used to that, right? Because you usually you're always doing the games from stateside.
2: Yeah, I've, I, you know, I, I've been known in, in a year to do 250 games. 250 soccer games in a year, which is incredible. I mean, we would do two, maybe three games a day. And I got very used to it. I mean, we did go to occasional games. When the game was big enough, they would send us. But, like, everybody now is finding out. And you're going to, I'd say after this pandemic, uh, television stations are going to say, hey, we can save a lot of money. It costs a lot of money to send people to games and get them to do the games. And if you get people who are good enough at it, the quality, like, my friends used to always say to me, oh, Smitty, you were in Athens the other day. How did you get back so quick? Or <laughs> uh, in uh, Moscow? <laughs> sure, I would And to be saying, oh, you must have millions of travel miles. Yeah, yeah, sure. I could buy a hotel with the miles I have.
0: It's funny. You mentioned Pele. I, I wanted to know if you remember or if you were here in the area at the time when he played for the New York Cosmos because the Cosmos were huge. They were-, they were the most popular team in New York. Uh, this is a time where The baseball teams and the NFL teams weren't too well. And the Cosmos really took over for that two-year period there where he was here.
2: Not alone was I here. The first night that he played in Randall's Island, I went to the game and didn't get home till 4 o'clock in the morning because the traffic, nobody expected that the amount of people that showed up was going to show up. And if you've been in New York and you know the Triborough Bridge, that's where Randall's Island is. It's at the bottom of the Triborough Bridge. And that's where the stadium was. And to get out of it was a disaster. In fact, there's a story told about that night that not an awful lot of people know. When they were televising the game, it really looked really nice. The the ground looked perfect and everything. Most of that ground was dirt and sand. And they actually sprayed it with green paint. (laughs) So when you've seen it on the television camera, it looked like it was a beautiful green field. But that was the start of it. And I mean... I used to go to the the Meadowlands then when when the Cosmos went there and the guy I do I do grumpy ponder's every morning with a guy called Rodney Marsh. Rodney was one of the big stars of the NASL. He played with Tampa Bay, he came from England. He was he played with the English team, he captained Manchester City, he was on Queen's Park Rangers. So Rodney was very well known in America. Came here Play with the Tampa Bay Rowdies, and New Yorkers hated him. I mean, they hated this guy. He had big blonde hair, and he scored goals like they were going out of style, and he was the most arrogant you-know-what, and he still is. I have to deal with him every morning, just in case he's listening. But, you know, it, it it was a great time for soccer. The problem was that, you know, I suppose the thing was that there wasn't enough of people to support the league. Everybody says the Cosmos ruined it. The Cosmos didn't ruin it. It was when the Cosmos went to other places and they couldn't get... I mean, the Cosmos could play in New York and play to a full house every night. But it was when they went to other places they couldn't draw the same kind of crowd because there wasn't any interest. But it did set, it did set the tone for soccer because the kid who was forcing his dad that to him, oh, I want to go to the Cosmos. I want to go to the Cosmos. That kid is now members of Fortune 500 companies with big bankrolls behind them and lots of money to spend. And they're the ones who have moved the soccer as it's going in America.
0: Yeah, it's certainly Cosmos made a, a huge impact for American soccer and who knows where it would be at today. If, if that team didn't have the success it did, you've obviously broadcast so many matches, tournaments. Uh, what, would be your favorite matches you've broadcast and what are some of the most memorable moments of your broadcasting career?
2: Okay, I would say probably my favorite moment, well, Manchester United against Bayern Munich in uh, 1999 in, uh, in Spain. It was the Champions League final. Bayern Munich led a goal nil until there was two minutes left in the game and Sir Alex Ferguson took on two subs. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, the man who's managing Manchester United at the moment, and another lad called Teddy Shearingham. And the two of them scored goals in the last two minutes and they won the biggest prize in Europe. That, w- that was unbelievable. I was also in Istanbul the night that uh, AC Milan led uh, Liverpool 3-0 at half time, and Liverpool came back and beat them in the shootout to win again, to win the Champions League. But I suppose my undying memory will be in Giant Stadium when Ireland beat Italy. When the Italians came out and said, "Hey, how come it's all Irish people this year tonight?" I thought it was supposed to be Italians. And I mean, we had no chance. We were one to we were a we hundred to one against. But Ray had to score a goal, and that was the end of the story. We made a stand up. So, but there's been so many great moments. I mean, it's just. Uh, I mean, I've seen Ronaldo. I've seen Messi. Uh, you know, I've interviewed Beckham. I've interviewed Pele. I was very lucky. I was. I mean, I I am so lucky. I mean, when anybody asks Tommy Smith about the american dream i just say if you don't believe in the american dream you have no right talking to me because i live i achieve i managed to get the american dream and the american dream turned me into one of the best known sportscasters in the world
0: yeah no doubt about it uh, your, your dreams have come true and you're one of the most well known, if not the most well known sock commentator there is. How did the, the Grumpy Pundit show come about?
2: Well, the Grumpy Pundit show came about because I was, uh, you know, I was ESPN in 2016. I decided I've had enough, or they decided they had enough of me, one or the other. I mean, it probably was a, a, a common conclusion that we came to. And uh, I was approached, Joe Tullison approached me about would I do a show with Rodney Marsh? And they had the name of the Grumpy Pundits. And, uh, you know, we had never met. In fact, uh, a little no, in fact, we did the show for three years and we never met. We used to, I I do the show from my place. He does the show from Tampa. And uh, it turned out like we were like, uh, you know, like we were an old pair of, you know, sneakers. You get into them and they're very comfortable. We hit it off, right? I suppose we're two dinosaurs we kind of saw the same things. I remember Rodney playing in England and I remember the star he was. And it's, it's great. I, I find it's great for younger viewers or listeners that they're make, that we can make a comparison for them. We can talk about what it was 25 years ago and we can also talk about what it was 10 years ago or what it was five years ago. So we've seen the transition of the game and how big the changes have been and how many different changes have happened in the game.
1: So I wanted to ask you because uh, with football, there are so many places around the world. And uh, when you, when you grow up and you, you live here, obviously Nick, and I were, we're huge fans of other sports, like, you know, football here, we both love hockey here. Uh, but a lot of our places don't really have like the rich history that some of these venues across the world, especially in Europe. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, what do you think uh, is the, the best venues to, to watch a game? Uh, I have a cousin who is a huge Man U fan, so obviously he's been to Wembley Stadium and uh, loved it there. And there's all that history there. Uh, but I mean, outside of Wembley, because that's always one of the first places that are mentioned. What would you consider some of the the best venues out there to watch a game? in? and is there any one in particular that you had the privilege of going to that you would consider your favorite?
2: Yeah, well, you know, just something else here that I need to tell you. For the past three years. I have been the Amazon voice of the the Thursday night football, right? Now, so I'm a big NFL fan. I was an NFL fan when I came here. I'm a huge Giants fan. To me, there's no place like Giants Stadium. No place like Giants (laughs) And I'm a huge Rangers fan too, you know. I go back to Matt Messi and all those guys. So I'm a Knicks fan. Like, I'm a New Yorker that has an Irish accent. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) um, obviously around the world, as you said, Wembley and places like that, or the American in Brazil, where you know, they can practically hold 200,000, but when you go to the big house in Michigan and there's 120,000 people there, I'll tell you one thing, it's pretty hard to beat it. Or if you go to South Bend in Indiana and you go to the home of the fight in Irish, I mean, on a day when there's a game on those places, every place has their own kind of, there's a vibe to every place. Um, I I would say the most enjoyable place I've been in is the Bernabeu in uh, Madrid. That's where Real Madrid play, and there's just something special about the stadium. But there's just so many great stadiums, and we have a stadium in Ireland called Crow Park that holds eighty seven thousand people. It's considered one of the best stadiums in the world. It's where we play again Gaelic football and hurling, and occasionally they play soccer there. That that is a very special place me as well obviously because i'm irish but there's just just so many places but i'll take a spot in giant stadium any sunday than anybody can give me a ticket that's the problem
0: there you go very expensive ticket there oh how do you how do you differ your preparation for a broadcast between a soccer match and a, a football game there's no football games
2: you know, it's it's one of the things that that amazed me when I started doing the Amazon because, like over the years, we have scrounged for information. Even though soccer may be the most uh, played game in the world, the information flow of it—people that's involved in the soccer to see it—as well as our game—everybody knows about it. We really don't have to do anything about it. The NFL goes the other way. Every Monday night, before a game, I would get probably four hundred pages of information from the two teams that's playing in the game. And what what amazed me altogether was it would come through at five o'clock on a Monday evening, right? And it would have the details from yesterday's game to the last half yard that a running back picked up. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, their system of, uh, you know, getting information out to people, it, it has to be the best in the world. I mean, if there were a spy organization, they would be unbelievable because the information to come up with. And it was just the problem was, you know, so much information and so little time because I'm doing Grumpy Pandas for four hours or three hours in the morning. So I have to prepare for that. And even on a Thursday, I would do Grumpy Pundus in the morning. And then I was away to do an NFL game. But I would pick and choose my spots as to what I needed. Uh, I, I like to think I'm a good storyteller. I like to think I recognize a good story. And I always look at a game from the fan's view. I, I mightn't have been. I'm certainly not as well up to date with the X's and the O's. But I know that, you know, it, I, I keep trying to tell that to, to...
0: Today, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all the entertainment you love without the hassle. Direct TV Stream brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before which means you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. And the best part? There's no annual contract. So stop waiting and get your TV together with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. COVID-19 is still around, but that doesn't mean the Army ROTC programs are not there for you. Earn scholarships for school and pursue the career you want. The leadership-developing Army ROTC classes will give any full-time student the focus and resources that can open doors down the road. Start sharpening the skills that will carve out your future today. Learn how at GoArmy.com ROTC. Army ROTC, now accepting college scholarship applications. Visit GoArmy.com slash money for college.
2: Announcers, when I'm talking to them all the time, Sport is not intended to be a religion. It's supposed to be somewhere where you get away from what you're dealing with. Let it be bad, let it be good, whatever it is. It's supposed to be enjoyment for a couple of hours that takes your mind off the world. And, you know, sometimes nowadays I find it, and this is not a knock on announcers, but I am going to let it go anyhow. Some of them talk too bloody much. They're (laughs) They're really talking me out of the game. You know, I'm watching television. I can see that, you know, the, the obvious things that some guys come up with just drive me absolutely nuts. And I had always that feeling of, you know, sit for a while, sit for a while, sit for a while. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you one other story. When I was in ESPN, we uh, commentated on games in Mandarin and Cantonese. And the Mandarin guys would be doing a game of soccer and there'd be two of them in the booth. And you would see maybe 20 minutes into the game. One guy would get up and he'd walk out of the boot. The one guy was left in the boot. So finally, it got the better of me. I couldn't believe it anymore. And I said to the guy, I said, why do you do that? Well, he said, in our culture, he said, we like to have each person enjoy a portion of the game on their own. So he said, he's doing the game. I go out and have a cup of tea. I come back in. I start doing the game. He goes out and has a cup of tea. And then we finish the game together and we put the two of our experiences together. Just so completely different. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Every culture is different and every broadcast crew is different as as well. How did the opportunity come about for you to be the co-host of the New York City St. Patrick's Day Parade on NBC?
2: Well, I was always involved in the parade because, as I said, I come from Loud, and I marched in the parade for many, many years. And actually what happened was there was a guy called Jack McCarthy who broadcast the parade for over 40 years on television and I got wind of the fact that Jack was going to be replaced by WPIX and again in fact I just wrote a story about it the other night I was at lunch in Manhattan with a young woman and she said to me you want a job I said yeah I want a job and she said okay she said WPIX is down the block I said yeah she said get down and ask them I said okay so I head off into WPIX Things were different those times, guys. You know, you could get into television stations and, you know, there wasn't a security, whatever there was. And I asked to speak to the person who was the executive producer of the parade. And I met a very nice woman and she listened to me and she gave me a form to fill out to put all my information on. And I didn't hear anything. So they announced then Jack O'Herlihy and Andrea McArdle. Andrea, of course, who was a star on Broadway in Annie. They were going to do the parade. So as luck would have it, a guy called me and said, you want to walk on the line of march on the parade? He said, you'd be down there. He said, just make sure the people keep moving. Because I had been involved in the parade for 40 years. And I said, sure. And about, the parade was maybe on an hour and a half. And I hear this thing on the on the radio. It said, Tommy Smith, Tommy Smith, please report to the announce boot. <laughs> I didn't even know where it was. And I was at 59th Street. And the announced boot was at 64th Street. So... I figured they were just changing where I was going to be standing. That's all. And I get to the booth, and the woman who I had met in WPIX was standing, waiting at the bottom of the steps. And she said, oh, we want you to do a spot, she said, on the, on the show. And I was, I mean, I was mortified. You know, really, it's St. Patrick's Day. There's only one station in the world carries it. There's millions of people watching it. And here I am going to do a spot on it. And I hadn't done it. I wasn't an ESPN at this time, remember. I was mm-hmm. still only, I was a house painter. I was painting houses in Long Island at this point in time, right? So I go up and Andrea McCarroll is there. She starts and she does an interview. And I got from the tone of what was going on, that things weren't going too well. You know, because there is a certain knack to the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And if you don't know the parade, it's very difficult to get it across to people because there's no floats. Remember, people always say, oh, the floats in the parade. There are no floats in the St. Patrick's Day Parade. There's bands and people and bands and people and get cops and firemen. <laughs> that's all that's in the parade. So we did a segment and I was getting up to leave. And she said, uh, the woman said to me, she said, could you stay for another you know something? I've stayed for 29 years. I've done 29 of them. I'm waiting to do my 30th. Couldn't do it last year. No parade. Can't do it this year and neither. So hopefully I live long enough that next year when all this is all over, I will get a chance to do my 30th St. Patrick's Day parade on television.
1: Yeah, congratulations. Uh, I want to ask, what is, favorite, uh, dish, but, uh, what is your favorite Irish dish? I do not want to say St. Patrick's Day dish, but what is your favorite Irish dish? Also, and what are your favorite uh, pubs or restaurant spots uh, throughout yeah, the I, city? Yeah, I'm
2: not a big drinker. So, I mean, the pubs I would go to is I go to watch, you know, I go to watch games in them. Uh, basically, uh, it, it's all over the place, you know. I, I like Rosie, uh, Rosie Um And I also, there, there's a few smaller ones that I like. I mean, there's a friend of mine, uh, Stephen Rogers, has a place on, on uh, Roosevelt Island. It's a place called Granny Annie's. It's just opened. Unfortunately, their timing wasn't great, but it's a lovely spot. Unbelievable the view of the city. You're down on ground level, and you're looking across, and the the, the the you know the car comes across on the top on the wire. It's brilliant. So you know that's a fa- my favorite dish. Uh, I don't really. I, lo- I love. Strangely enough, sounds ster- st- stereotypical. Is that the word? Irish stew. Love it. Absolutely love it. I mean, that's what when I'd be away for. I used to, when I was with ESPN, I'd be gone sometimes for two weeks at a time. When I come back, Tras always had the stew ready for me. That was my treat when I came back. Tommy, but, is, it,
0: is it an American thing to eat, Saint Pat- to eat uh, corned beef and cabbage and potatoes on St. Patrick's Day? Or do Irish people
2: actually eat that as well? Irish people in America eat it. It came from the fact that in Hell's Kitchen, the people were very poor. And what they would do is they would buy a chunk of meat and they would put it in, you know, those five-gallon cans for your painting, and they would salt it. And that's how corned beef and cabbage became. In Ireland, the national dish is uh, bacon and cabbage. And the reason for it was that the tenant farmers weren't allowed to have any animals themselves. So when they would have a pig in the back that the boss or the landlord didn't know about, when they killed the pig, they would bile the pig. And to make sure they were never caught, they would always pile in cabbage on the top of it because that killed the smell of the meat coming out. So when the, if the landlord came around and he looks into the pot, all he sees in there is cabbage and he gets the smell of cabbage. So in Ireland, it's bacon and cabbage and here is corned beef and cabbage. And if you get it right, it's a terrific meal. No doubt about it.
0: What was your reaction when you were asked to be the Grand Marshal of the St. Patrick's Day Parade in
2: 2008? I'm not sure that there is such a thing as a reaction to that. I mean, it, you know, you come here a young man like I did and you arrive in the States and you get involved and I was involved in the community and I'm MC and dances and I'm announcing football games and, yeah, everywhere I go, people know me. And John Dunleavy, who was the chairman of the parade that then called me. It was on my birthday, actually, two years beforehand. And he called me and we were sitting in the Riverdale Steakhouse up in, uh, in, in the Bronx And he said to me, uh, would you consider being Grand Marshal? And I said, come on, John. I said, you're winding me up now. No, no, no. He said, I'm not. I said, you're serious? Ah, he said, yeah. Well, you know, I was, it was like somebody just took the chair out from under me to think that, you know, uh, the parade, which a lot of people don't realize is 250 plus years And it has gone through wars and everything else. It's been on the streets of New York for that amount of time. And in all the time that has been on there, there never was a person from my part of the world that was grand marshal. So here I was being a record breaker. And I was joining a club that only had 250 members. Each year there was a grand marshal. And there was very few of them left. I just couldn't believe it because in the circles I move around in, it's the highest honor that a civilian can get in the United States man or woman to be chosen as the Grand Marshal of the St. Patrick's Day Parade it really is a tremendous honour and it was I'll tell you how excited I was Nick right I got up that morning and we were heading for uh, St. Patrick's because that's where the whole lot starts 8.30 mass right and I'm in the bathroom shaving and Trassa comes in behind me and she said something and I don't know. I said do you see my glasses anywhere there and she said yeah I do she said they're on your face. <laughs> <laughs> so that was how excited I was. It was just, it was unbelievable.
1: So I wanted to ask you, uh, because you have experience doing major league soccer games from your time with the Metro stars and the union, uh, recently, uh, you've got the opportunity to cover, uh, La Liga games, Serie A games when you were with ESPN. Uh, so I wanted to bring up this because I think it's relevant. Uh, NBC announced that the NBC sports network is going to be no more. And obviously uh, the premier league uh, has gotten very popular over the course of the last uh, six or seven years being broadcast on NBC. And there have been uh, many national spots and uh, you could attribute the rise to some teams uh, like such as Liverpool and Manchester city uh, and the growth of the game uh, based on their partnership. So now that NBC sports is no more, it's probably going to be questioned what, properties are retained by the, 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 the network. Maybe the Premier League stays there. Maybe they go elsewhere. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, because you probably have uh, somewhat of a better informed opinion about this than a lot of people do. Uh, do you think that these major European leagues like La Liga, Serie A, uh, Bundesliga, Premier League, uh, do you think that they do a good job reaching out and being able to tap into the American markets? Uh, and if you think that there's stuff that they could do better, uh has there any been like like conversations or 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 suggestions from people higher up that that you have heard uh in in order to better grow the game especially here in the u.s because i think it is growing and i think major league soccer is growing and you probably know that too better than anybody uh but do you think the european leagues do a good job of tapping into the american potential and if you don't think they do what do you think that
2: they should do that they don't do now well, there's one man that, that spearheads all this, and he's the guy I spoke about that hired me for the Metro Stars, and that's Charlie Stilotano. He's with Relevant Sport, which is the company that's owned by the gentleman that owns the Miami Dolphins, and they bring—they're the ones that bring out all these teams. that had been bringing them out the whole in the summertime and getting a hundred thousand people to go to the game. So they did a fantastic job of it. And um, there's much more that. The Europeans can do in terms of, uh, you know, getting their game on front of audiences. Yes, the Premier League has done a fantastic job because NBC bought into it, and we had more. If you're sitting in New York on a Saturday, you can watch more games than any guy sitting in London or Manchester, wherever it is, because every game is available now. As you said, NBC Sports has said they're not going to be any more now. There's two key components here. They have issued a statement that uh, the Premier League will be up in the air. My understanding is the Premier League uh, contract ends next year. So does it become a case of other stations bid for it? I mean, ESPN has gone the route now of this ESPN Plus, Mm -hmm. where you can get 900,000 soccer games on a Saturday. They're from everywhere. Everywhere. For $5 a month. Is that the route they're going to go? The problem is... There's so much money in soccer in Europe, you know, that if you get if you get relegated in the Premier League, you get like a 20 million uh, golden parachute as you go down to the next league. That's what makes soccer so different than any of the sports here, is that there is relegation and promotions. The bottom three teams go down, the top three teams in the league below them after a playoff, whatever, they come up. So the amounts of money that's involved in the broadcast deal is what the big problem is. And, you know, I would imagine that at some point they're going to have to lower the prices because I don't think that you can keep doing what they're doing and charging the kind of money they're making. Like when you see somebody like people just say to me, ah, oh, yeah, but look at American football, look at the money they make. Yeah, sure. Look at the money they make. You know, I'll give you an example. There's a guy called Garrett Bale who played with, Real Madrid or signed with Real Madrid from Spurs and he sat on the bench he was making almost a million dollars a week for sitting on the bench mm-hmm. and these guys keep in mind they get paid 52 weeks a year so he's getting 52 million a year for sitting on the bench look at Messi's contract I mean Messi's contract you could run five countries on it and still have money left over he was getting that much money and yeah. every 10 10- He signed a contract, he was getting £150 million. So every time he signed a new contract, it was like they had to buy a new player because he had to get £150 million signing on bonus. So the money that was in soccer before this pandemic was absolutely unbelievable. Now, so much of your question is going to be answered by how the pandemic shakes things out because there are clubs in Europe now that are going broke. Barcelona bankrupt. Biggest club in the world, probably one of the biggest clubs in the world. Played the best football in the world. They're going bankrupt. Real Madrid's nearly as bad. So many. One of the things that's going to save the Premier League is, and this is crazy, there's so many American owners buying into it. You know, you have the Blazers, you have the boys up in Fenway Park with Liverpool, the Blazers of Manchester United. I mean, they're all over the place. They're all over the place. And you even have players now like, you know, uh, Tim Howard, who played on the US national team, played in England for many years. He actually owns a club in England now. So right. Right. they're investing into it. And then you have that other guy, this coach of the the, the Nets. Uh, what's his name? Nash. Nash. Yeah. Steve Nash. Steve Nash. He owns a team in Spain. So, I mean, the American money that's flooding into the European game could save them. But definitely, to further the game, they need to get more exposure here. And whilst, you know, I, I, I say this softly because I don't want people pushing back at me. NBC was doing a great job. And NBC did a fantastic job. You know, Robbie is a friend of mine. Robbie is a friend of mine. And they did a fantastic job. The only thing was... That as it pushed forward in America, the American audience only became aware of the Premier League. So the Premier League is huge, where Serie A, the Italian League, La Liga, the Spanish League, the Bundesliga, they're all trailing so far behind because it became almost a one league country. The Premier League it probably is as popular here as it is in England.
0: Yeah, and of course. The other athlete that owned a team was Mike Piazza in Italy, and they had some issues. But <laughs> you know, ESPN losing the World Cup was was a big loss for them. But it didn't really work out for Fox the first time around because U.S. did not make the World Cup, which was a tremendous embarrassment. What what do you what do you see here for the immediate future here for the U.S. national team?
2: Oh, the U.S. national team at the moment uh, they are probably. Uh, at this stage in their, uh, you know, development, they're probably better off than they have ever been. The amount of young American soccer players who are now playing in Europe, and and, and I'm saying with all due respects to the guys who came before them, the Brian McBrides, the Clint Dempsey's, Casey Kellers, you know, all those guys, they did a fantastic job of pushing it. But now these guys are getting signed in, and they're becoming like Pulisic, major star with Chelsea. You have McKinney, major star with Juventus. They're two of the biggest teams in Europe. And now Juventus, who never, never depended on anybody, practically, that wasn't Italian, are depending on this young American kid. I mean, the Bundesliga, there's so many players. Claudio Reyna's son, he's playing with Borussia Dortmund. Claudio is, is uh, involved with, I think it's Austin, yeah, Austin, the, the new Austin team. And his son is a fantastic player. So as you go around now, you could put your hand and say, okay, there's 25 players in the U.S. now that are world-class players. The problem is that Bearhalter he needs to take them now and he needs to get them to become a team. It's not good enough to, to win a World Cup. I've always said that the day that the United States say, okay, we are going to win the World Cup, is the day that the United States would win the World Cup because they have the resources, they have the population, they have everything. I mean, people say, Tommy, you're mad. And I said, well, if I told you 10 years ago or 15 years ago that the US were going to win five or six tours of France, when did you ever see bicycle riding in the US? Yeah, but I know know it turned out to be a bad story, but they still nevertheless Mm -hmm. won and they had the capabilities. Now, when the US say, okay, we're going to put the funds, we're going to put everything together and we're going to push. US will make a good run in the World Cup, and this could be it. If the approach is right now, I have never seen as many stars on the landscape as there is now, stretched around the world. I mean, you have McKinney's after signing with uh, from Philadelphia. He, he just signed with Hank in uh, uh, Belgium. You have uh, Aronson, who just signed with Salzburg in Austria. I mean, there's two guys, local guys from Philadelphia. You have... Uh, that kid went from, he, he went from uh, the New York City team, what's his name, Harals, uh, Harrison, he went to England and he, he's become a star. So there are young men available to play and it's a quick case of getting them together now and putting them together and making a team out of them. And that's one of the big problems with international football. Managers don't get enough of time with the players. So you have to be going on what they're doing and you have to be watching what they're doing with their clubs. But when it comes to putting a bunch of individuals together, you know, you may have, I I always say that you can have 11 individuals who are brilliant. And if you have 11 individuals who are not so brilliant, but are a team, they're the ones that's going to beat the 11. That's brilliant.
1: All good stuff. Uh, And I also agree with you. I think, more so than ever, you're seeing American players uh, get to that really high level and be able to go to teams like Chelsea and be able to compete and be the top players at the profession. So uh, everything that you said is totally true. Uh, you know, we thank you for coming on. This was really, really fun. This was really, really knowledgeable. And I think uh, a lot of the answers that you gave, uh, I think, are really great, especially if you're just a casual kind of soccer fan like Nick and I are when we get, you get into it during the major events uh, but I do have one last question for you, uh, and, and I hope you don't take offense to this, uh, but I want to know, for somebody who's looking to speak in an Irish accent, uh, do you have any tips or do you have any uh, nuggets to make it easier?
2: Well, you either got to do one or two things, right? You got to talk real quick or you got to talk real slow. One <laughs> <or> the <laughs> accent has got to be singing, you know, oh, there you are now, right? There you go now, boy. You know, you have to soften everything at the end. Don't be harsh. Irish accents are not harsh. That's the one That's the one mistake a lot of these movie stars make, and they make a harsh accent. They're not harsh. Irish accents are soft. So just have a soft accent and lift it up at the end, you know. There you go now. You know. oh. <laughs> very.
1: Oh, very, very good advice.
2: I uh, get your money. A- oh, no, I can't say that. Sorry. I was going to give out some betting tips, but I, I realized that I'm way ahead of myself. <laughs> I will say, that if you are going to bet, I think Manchester United are a good shot at winning the Premier League this year. Everybody tells me City's going to waltz away with it. I think Manchester United are a good shot at it.
1: For our listeners, uh, our degenerate listeners like myself, would you? gamble, yeah. <laughs> I am now going to bet Man U to win the Premier League. Uh, yeah. Tommy, thank you for coming on. Thank you for doing this. This was really, really appreciate it. Uh, we always give our guests the last word. So if there's anything else you would like to share, promote or share, you know, personal story with our listeners, go right ahead. Thank you again for doing this. It was a lot of fun.
2: Now, Joe and Dick, it was my pleasure. Let me tell you, I mean, I love to find people like you who are willing to go out on a limb and do something that nobody else will do. And, you know, you're way ahead of the curve. And let me tell you, I always say the bandwagon is moving. And like you said earlier, soccer is becoming very popular in America. I'm not going to say that MLS is going to win over the soccer population or the sports population in the United States. But I'll tell you what the European game and the South American game can. Because when you travel cities in New York, now Philadelphia, and you see these kids with Messi jerseys on them, Ronaldo jerseys on them, you know, Wayne Rooney jerseys, you would never see that 20 years ago. I mean, there just wasn't that knowledge. And now the fact that the world is so so close and so together, like you said about the communications earlier, when I came here first, it was to call my mother. It cost me $5 a minute. Now, you know, and it was a three-day phone call because I would have to call the store and i said say to the owner, I couldn't say, have my mother there tomorrow because you mightn't see her. I would say, have her there the next day. And people used to say to me, uh, you know, you were a cheap son of a bitch, weren't you? And I said, no, no. They said, why didn't you get her a phone? There was a seven-year waiting list to get a phone. Now you have the communications where phone calls, I was just on to my brother before I came down to you here and it was free. And I was looking at him. I'm looking at him back 3,000 miles away. So the world has changed so much. Don't ever be afraid to take a chance. And the one thing I always say to people, young people in particular who are going out into the world trying to get a job, don't let anybody else tell you you can't do the job. Let it be up to you to make a decision that you can't do the job. If you find the job is too big for you, be a man or a woman enough to walk away from it. But until you find it's too big for you, you stick in there and eventually it will come good.
0: Great advice there, Tommy. This has been a peach of an episode here, a great interview. Uh, for all our listeners, make sure you tune in to Tommy and Rodney Marsh on Grumpy Pundits on SiriusXMFC. That's five days a week in the morning. And, you know, call, call Tommy and let him know you, you heard him on this show. they will be happy to hear that. But that's going to do it here. So for our special guest, Tommy Smith, with a Y and my co host Joe Calabrese. I'm McDurst, and this has been You No, I'm Right. Hear that? That's the sound of someone trying to steal your crypto. Every day, thousands of hackers online are doing the same. That's why Arculus uses air gapped cold storage technology to protect your assets. Using our keycard and wallet app to form a protective barrier. Arculus insulates you from hackers and puts control of your digital assets back in your hands. Order the first truly air-gapped crypto wallet at GetArculus.com.